guys, and welcome back to the Yes Means Yes podcast. On this week's episode, we're going to be talking about intimacy after a sexual assault. We have on our podcast this week, Dr. Morgan Jenkins. Morgan is an LPC, which is a licensed professional counselor in the Auburn, Alabama area and works part-time at a private practice. I'm going to let her talk a little bit more about herself and then also get everyone else to introduce um, who they are who are joining us today, but my name is Faith Nomshev. I am the Victim Advocate and Outreach Counselor with Rape Counselors. If Amanda, you want to go ahead and... Yes, I'm Amanda, and I also work with Faith at Rape Counselors of East Alabama. I am a Victim Advocate, and I'm also the Outreach Specialist here. Hi, everybody. I'm Shilpa. I'm an intern here at uh, Rape Counselors of East Alabama. I also work with Faith, and I am studying to get my master's in social work and my master's in nonprofit organization from uh, Case Western in uh, Cleveland, Ohio. I'm Morgan Jenkins. Um, I live in the Auburn area. I have a private practice that I work at part-time. I do part-time because I also am an instructor at the University of West Georgia. So I uh, commute there a couple days a week and I teach in their graduate counseling program. And I teach a lot of different classes, like some basic stuff like counseling skills and principles of um, clinical mental health counseling. Uh, but my, my baby of all of it would be uh, a gender and sexuality class that I created. And so it's an elective available for uh, the grad school counselors. And it is just such a fun class to teach. And I'm definitely going to mention a lot of things from there uh, during today. So I wanted to make sure that I mentioned that. So yeah, that's what I do. I do part-time private practice. I see a lot of different clients, a lot of different uh, concerns, but I do focus a lot of energy on sexual concerns. Thank you. Um, so we're just going to really jump right into the questions. Can you tell us a little bit about your experience, if any, working with sexual assault survivors or victims? Yeah, um, absolutely. With your students or in practice? And then also, I know you said you work a lot with uh, sexual concerns. What experience you've had with sex-related or intimacy-related issues just in general? Yeah, so um, let's see. My first experience working with clients was during my internship so I um, got both my bachelor's and master's at Auburn in, uh, in counseling. And then when I was wrapping that up and doing my internship, I worked at a domestic violence shelter in Montgomery. And it was not fully focused on sexual assault, but we did see a lot of intimate partner violence, um, some sexual assault that went along with that. And so that's kind of where I started my career. And then when I graduated, I worked at a children's advocacy center, which is focused on uh, child sexual abuse, child physical abuse as well and neglect, but we so, saw mostly child sexual abuse. And I did that for three years where I was a forensic interviewer and a counselor for those uh, children. And that was um, some pretty intense work. It's a high burnout rate because it's, it's really hard. You're that first person a lot of times mm -hmm. that the child is disclosing abuse to. Um, and so after a couple years, I, I decided I wanted to start private practice. I wanted to work with more adults. And so I came back and got my PhD at Auburn in counselor education. And uh, during that time, I opened my own private practice. And uh, I always just had a soft spot for working with some of that trauma after working at the Children's Advocacy Center. So I didn't focus a lot of my, uh, I guess, advertising and energy on saying I was trauma-based, but I, I definitely still consistently have trauma clients. And then what happened was during my PhD program, I realized there was a, a lack of research on um, some sexual concerns and how to broach that stuff 
as a counselor and counselors report to not being comfortable bringing up those types of things with their clients, which is a huge issue as we can all imagine. So Mm -hmm. I decided to do my dissertation on pornography addiction. That was just something I had stumbled across throughout um, a lot of my education and my time at the CAC. And so um, I I did a lot of research on that and that just made me more comfortable discussing these sexual issues. So I have the trauma background and then I built on that and now um, have a lot of clients at my private practice that are exploring maybe not um, intimacy after assault or after trauma, but I do see quite a few of uh, of different types of concerns, uh, orgasmic disorders and uh, erectile dysfunction and things like that. So I think I'm just one of those people that I don't mind talking about this stuff. And so just putting it out there, I've really had a lot of clients come to me and say anything related to their sexuality, they've kind of sought me out. So that's how I've ended up with a lot of different clients in different situations uh, going through these types of concerns. So um, are issues with intimacy and sex after an assault common amongst survivors? Yes, absolutely. You know, something I saw at the CAC and and we worked with um, young kids all the way up to 18. Something we would see is either after dealing with uh, sexual trauma, they would experience hyposexuality or hypersexuality. And a lot of it just kind of depends on the, the client and kind of their personality. But you know, you could never tell which way it was going to go. If it was happening before puberty, you know, a lot of the treatment would focus on what their future sexuality is going to look like, uh, how to avoid triggers and how to um, still have a healthy sex life, even though they had gone through this this stuff. Um, But we would see both. We would see the, the two extremes where they would just shut down completely sexually and not want that to be a part of their life at all. Or they would go the opposite direction and feel like sexuality was the only way to, to kind of connect with people. So yeah, there's no way to know which way it is going to happen based on the client, but we do see both sides. I'm curious when you did your dissertation, um, did you find any connections with the porn addiction and um, how that plays into sexual assault and the hypersexuality or even the hyposexuality? Like, did it go up or down or can you speak more on that? Well, so there's a lot of a lot of different research articles out there, and this is something that has only been researched within the past few years because for a long time, porn was viewed as, oh yeah, well people do it, but it's not a big deal. It's just this thing. Um, Just accept it and move on. But what was happening is people were starting to realize that there were a lot of issues in relationship satisfaction. There was more violent acts that people could attribute to watching porn. And the reason that happens is somebody who views porn all the time, they go and they look at 20 different videos until they find what works. They're training their brain to require more intense and novel experiences to get what it is that they need. And so as they do that, it's likely that some of those things are violent in nature. And so you do worry that that would turn into behavioral concerns. And, and there have been a few articles to suggest that that was true, that, that people that were, um, you know, the, the whole idea of porn addiction is not like an actual disorder yet. It needs to be, in my opinion. Um, but if we just kind of say it colloquially, 
okay, this person was addicted to porn. Yes, we did see that a lot of times that equaled more violent behaviors in their relationships and real life sexual situations. And then there was a whole slew of other issues, but I could talk about that forever. <laughs> but you are right that that has played, I, I believe, a role. Um, there's a lot of rape porn out there. There's a lot of porn that um, celebrates crying and tears and uh, very scary situations. So absolutely, I think it's it's done some damage. So just to clarify, are you saying the damage is mainly for like the perpetrator and like them eventually perpetrating or Mm -hmm. are you saying it's um, more for the victim after they have gone through the sexual assault and then go well that's a good point because um because you're right because i was implying about the the offenders tend to you you know even ted bundy tried to say that his behavior was due to watching pornography which that was a last last ditch effort for him to try to explain his behavior so yes it's definitely affected perpetrators but i do believe it's affected survivors because them knowing that this exists and that this is what people are viewing on purpose makes it seem like it's okay. And this is something that's the norm. And so it's potentially causing survivors to not disclose or to just accept this type of violent behavior in their relationships. So yeah, I think across the board, it has it has played a role. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, thank you for sharing about that. I know that as people, which I'm young, but I know that people have been practicing for years and years. It's something that like we've known, but now that there's actually studies to back it up, they're like, oh, yes. you know, maybe we should look into this. Like maybe this is a problem. Absolutely. Yes. And there's, um, I'm so thankful that a lot of celebrities are starting to talk about it because they're recognizing like, hey, this is kind of causing some problems with me personally and with my relationship. Uh, And those that are making those connections and choosing to give it up are seeing a lot of really positive things, including having healthier um, sex lives with their partners. So Terry Crews from Brooklyn Nine-Nine, he is an amazing uh, advocate for going porn free. Uh, He's got tons of videos on YouTube. I would suggest looking at that. And there's a great uh, website called fightthenewdrug.org. And it is uh, completely about giving up porn and why it damages the brain of the user, why it damages um, basically the partners in these situations and how it can negatively impact the heart as well as the brain. And then also its impact on the world and how it contributes to uh, human trafficking and all all these other types of things that are going on. So fantastic website. If you guys want to explore those, I think it's great. I feel like we could literally spend an entire podcast just talking about (laughs) pornography, but yes, (laughs) we'll kind of rein in it a little bit. So if you, because we like to kind of like educate um, on this podcast and we want to give information as best we can so that people feel less scared to seek help so they get an idea of what's going to happen. So as a therapist, um, Mm -hmm. if you were to have a client come in with issues um, of them wanting to redevelop intimacy after an assault, not really knowing how, what steps would you take to work with them? I think the most important thing is to make sure that the trauma has been addressed correctly first. Because uh, you don't want to try to jump into any type of sexual encounter when that's still there, because it is going to be uh, re-traumatizing. You could have secondary trauma. You could have a lot of a lot of things that just convolute that feeling. And so I think we have to take a step back and make sure the trauma has been addressed. Um, 
I practice with uh, TFCBT, which is trauma-focused cognitive behavioral therapy. When I'm focused on trauma, I'm more existential when I, uh, I'm dealing with some other stuff. But TFCBT is uh, just so great to help somebody process their trauma in a way so that you can start having the conversations about jumping back in. And I mentioned earlier working with teenagers at the CAC that we would have to really focus our energy on, okay, yes, you are going to eventually jump back into sexuality in some way, shape or form. So let's go ahead and explore that. But beforehand, we would always go through the, the same process we would, even if it was a six-year-old, about the psychoeducation, the trauma narrative, that whole process. So TFCBT, great thing to address the trauma first. Same with EMDR. Um, I've heard a lot of positive stuff. I don't practice EMDR, but um, for listeners who are interested in this, they could seek out somebody who is trained in that specific um, treatment module. And it's really, I've heard extremely fascinating how it works. Um, You guys have probably heard about it. It's the eye movement thing where Mm -hmm. they, yeah, they track the the trauma and the memories and stuff. Fascinating stuff. So those are my two ideas for handling the trauma, but the trauma must be addressed before we can start talking about intimacy currently. Mm -hmm. But once the client feels, and, and I'm, also believe the uh, clinician or whoever they're working with also feels like they are ready to move in that direction of introducing intimacy back into their lives. Uh, Then I think at that point, the biggest thing is making sure that they can separate the assault or the trauma from sexuality in general. So we don't want that to represent sexuality to them. So we have to work on separating those two things and saying that was a violent act. It does not have to tie into sexuality. It does not have to tie into intimacy and your future relationships. Um, So we find a way to disconnect those two things so that they can view their future intimate lives in uh, their own way and in a new way, I would say without having that trauma just kind of tagging along the whole time. And then once we do that, I think we have to just have re-education on what healthy relationships look like. So having a lot of conversations in psychoeducation about what an intimate relationship should look like in 2020, uh, at least in our culture, and um, helping them embrace what that is and accept that too. Because there's going to be a lot of sexual myths that they have probably um, inadvertently accepted. And so we would really want to spend a lot of time on that. And then honestly, after that, it's all about getting to know your own body and what you like, what you don't like, what's going to be triggering for you. And that process um, ideally would be done with a partner, but I think it can be done completely alone too. If let's say somebody is single and they just want to go ahead and start processing through this stuff. uh, I do think that it's possible to do it that way, but ideally we see that, um, a lot of these survivors do well when they have a healthy relationship that they can be fully uh, communicative about these triggers and these uh, things that are going on. So, you know, it can be done either way, but at that point, it's all about exploring your own body, learning the stuff that uh, we did not learn correctly to begin with. Cause we know sex ed in this <laughs> country is pretty bad, 
particularly in the South, uh, and then just help them embrace and, and learn about what it is that they, they want and they like. And if the partner is involved, then get them involved as best as we can and uh, try to move on that way. So if someone who was listening, they're not quite ready to take that step to go and start seeing a clinician regularly, mm -hmm. is there things that they could be doing on their own at home? Yeah, yeah, I think... Now, are we assuming that these these people have overcome the trauma aspect, or is this before they've even kind of gone through that part? How about we do both? We'll do okay. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So if they've not um, fully dealt with the trauma yet, and, and that's okay because sometimes they're not ready for a while, and sometimes it just takes some bizarre thing to happen for them to say, okay, it's time for me to go address this. And that's okay. I think there are a lot of good books that they can read. Um, there's a fantastic one about trauma. You guys probably talk about this book all the time. Um, what's it called? The Body Keeps the Score uh, is such a great book. It's by, who wrote that? Bessel? Yeah. Like Andrew Kolk. Yeah. <laughs> that is a fantastic book. Um, yes. Whether they've dealt with the trauma or not, because it just helps educate them on how sexual trauma can affect you afterwards. And for them to be able to identify, this is what I'm experiencing, uh, I think is really valuable in the healing process. So I would just tell them to educate themselves on um, these effects and also to do, to maybe open up and have a support system, at least somebody they can, they can talk to about what they've experienced, even if it's not a professional yet, just to have those conversations and have somebody to say like, this is how I feel right now. And just, you know, most of the time support system's going to say, no, this guilt that you're feeling, I understand why you're feeling it, but it is not your fault. And just having those mm -hmm. reminders, I think would be really great until they're ready to step into, um, to, to kind of really processing it professionally. Um, if they've gone through that part, but they're not ready to talk about the intimacy piece yet, there's, I would suggest the same thing, educate themselves just on the, what intimacy and healthy relationships look like. Maybe keeping a journal of when they watch TV and seeing what they value and don't value in certain relationships that they're watching just for self-awareness building and for them to have some stuff to come to when they are ready to talk about it, uh, come with and say, yeah, I see that a lot of shows portray relationships like this. Is that true? You know, and just kind of keep notes and, and, and start processing what that's going to look like for them. So um, what are, what is important for intimate partners of victims and survivors to know or understand? Yeah, a lot. Um, I really think that the most important thing they can do is First, learn what the effects of trauma are and try to understand what their partner has gone through. So we, we see this in opposite sex couples. A lot, of, a lot of men have a hard time wrapping their head around what it's like to be, and, and you know, of course, I'm making the assumption that we're talking about an opposite sex couple where um, the woman has gone through something and uh, the man has not. That's not always the case. We know that's not the case. Um, but just in this example, I think that the the males in that have a hard time figuring out why things are as big of a deal as they are for women because they have not grown up having to worry about their safety every second. They don't have to worry about running at night. They don't have to, you know, think about these things that we know that women have to do. So 
they're already missing a little bit of that. And so I think as much education on just the experience of survivors, uh, not only of what happens with the assault and, and kind of the whole consent process, they need to learn all about that too. Uh, they need to understand some of the basic background stuff, the gender role stuff that has played a role in this as well. So a lot of education for them, for them to, um, to really get to know the triggers of their partner. And this is where a process, there's a couple really interesting activities that um, the partners can do to, to learn about these things, but trying to figure out what those triggers are, how can I avoid them? Uh, how can we go against the triggers? So if a trigger is like a dark room, okay, great. So this partner is going to learn that and take that knowledge and then now make sure that there's not a dark room. Uh, so it's, it's just trying to get them as invested in this process as possible and make sure that they're being patient and that they're, they're doing what they need to do to provide that support. So it's going to look different for each situation, but as long as they're willing to work and, and they're being open to the process, I really do think that they help the process. So as a rape counselor's um, organization, what can we do to um, support partners of victims of sexual assault? Yeah, I, I think being a, being unbiased and being there to answer their questions would be really helpful because they're going to have questions and they're going to be a little bit embarrassed to ask certain things because once again, if they're the partner and they have not experienced something like this, they're going to have a hard time really understanding. So uh, being kind of unbiased and empathetic towards their side of things and offering that space for them to ask questions and learn and just provide resources for them to better understand, I think would be just so helpful. And actually within our organization, we try to refer to um, partners, family, friends of survivors as um, secondary victims. Good, so, yeah. Um, just because it, the impact is gone just like past their survivor in most instances. It's affecting every part of their life and everyone in their life. Absolutely. We are definitely looking now into um, doing a secondary victim support group too. Yeah, I love that. I think that would be extremely helpful. And, you know, for partners, it, it's really just helping them see, okay, you're going to have to be patient. We really don't want you to be pushing the survivor in any way because it has to be done on their own time uh, and, and in their own way. And so just that constant support and, and reminding them of that would be helpful, which I mean, that's kind of like a well, duh thing, but I think that we can't harp on that too much. And do you have any resources for partners? You know, I, I don't have any off the top of my head, but I think that honestly, the best thing they could do would be to read and consume the same resources that the partner does. Um, just so that they're really seeing what it is that they're seeing as well. Now, there's probably some great books out there that are designed to, to talk to the partner as opposed to the survivor. Um, but I've always thought, you know, when I work with couples going through any type of thing, I would rather them have the same book that they read, even if it applies more to one than the other, just so they get to talk through it together. And that can be really valuable. So, you know, yes and no is my answer. <laughs> So with us talking about this, so do you think it's important or necessary for sex to be reintroduced after an assault? Why, you know? Yeah. You know, the more that we learn about sexual orientations and asexuality, 
the more I want to say no to this, to this answer. I mean, here's the thing. Sexuality is typically something that is a part of all of our lives. Um, it's a biological thing. It's a psychological thing. It's very important to relationships, most relationships, but we're seeing more and more people coming out saying that sexuality is not a part of their life and they're completely fulfilled. But I don't want to support that thought process and, and allow people to, and clients to just be like, Oh, well, yeah, I'm just asexual. Cause I don't want that as a part of my life. When in reality, they, they do. Right. So, so there's a fine line between identifying, is this somebody who truly is presenting as asexual? Cause I, I do know some, some people that identify as asexual and, and that's fine. And it has nothing to do with trauma. It has, but I would hate for people to not pursue a healthy sex life and kind of push it away just because of the trauma. So for the most part, I think that, at least based off what I know, and you guys can tell me a little bit more about this is survivors do want that to be able to, to happen again and for them to mm-hmm. have those intimate relationships. Um, and, and so if there's any, any ounce of that wanting it to happen again, then I say, yes, they need to push for it. Um, but I, I just wanted to acknowledge that there are some people that that might not ever be the case and that's okay too. Mm-hmm. Right. I think it's really important that you did touch on that because for some people that wasn't a part of their life before and it's not after, or it just, it's not an important part of their life. Uh, We have a hard time accepting that as a society right now. Um, which is funny because we don't want to talk about sex very often, at least not in an educational manner. We want to show it on the TV and support all that as much as we Mm -hmm. can, but we don't want to have these types of conversations and these hard conversations about um, trauma and assault. Yet when somebody doesn't want sex as a part of their life or, or doesn't have that urge at all, we can't comprehend that like that. That's not fair. So I I think we're kind of in a messy place when it comes to accepting asexuality, but (laughs) I agree with that. Um, I think, and Amanda, if you want to share any of your thoughts too, I think that what we've seen with our survivors and stuff is, like you said, like, I think most of them, well, we've even had ones who, they have been assaulted while in a partnership. And that is something that they do want to continue occurring. They do still want that intimate relationship with them. It's just kind of like building that trust again, because this person has lost their trust. Um, And I have heard, and Morgan, you can maybe speak to this too, that if a female is assaulted, having a good male counselor mm-hmm. is quite beneficial as it kind of helps her see him as a trusting male figure and allows her to maybe building that good relationship will mm-hmm. continue on into other male relationships. Yeah, absolutely. Particularly if they don't have any men in their lives that they can trust. So if they're, they're not close with their dad or they don't have brothers that they're close. Yeah. I do think that that could be a really helpful piece. I know that, um, I've seen that happen a lot and I've seen that happen uh, the opposite way too, where I've had male clients seek me out because they don't have any positive relationships with women. And so that was something that they kind of thought needed to fill a hole, but you're right. I think it is nice to be able to offer that. So I think that if they're ready to have a man in that position, which I know they might not always be because of the fear. So, But if they could, yeah, I think that's a great idea. 
And I think too, sometimes, you know, survivors, um, when they're in relationships, they don't really like at first, I think they don't really realize how much it's affecting their sex life until later on. And yeah. then like, you know, possibly there's things that are brought up and then, you know, you will see that part where they're like, I really want this, but it's just really hard. And so I think just helping, I think it's important that, you know, men or husbands or whoever should be aware of how they really are trying. They're not, because I, I think we hear that some is that they say, Oh, well, they don't think that I'm trying or that I'm dissing them or I'm rejecting them and I'm not, I'm really trying, but it's really hard for me. Yeah. So I really think it would be important too, just even to have support groups um, and education out there more so. And maybe there is some research. I don't know. You could probably tell us if there's some resources out there for that, that could actually help them see kind of their partner's view in that. Yeah, I think that'd be a great idea just to be able to talk to other partners about what they're mm -hmm. experiencing and, and hear, okay, how is your partner responding to this or what triggers have you noticed? Because that's just going to help them be more educated. And, mm -hmm. you know, we're getting better at this very slowly. Um, but even my husband has these... Um, these like dad app things that give him little blurbs of like, she might be feeling this right now. So mm. um, maybe, you know, encourage her to do this. <laughs> and I was not happy yes. when he told me I needed to go for a walk today, but <laughs> yeah, I was like, <laughs> but I love the idea that this was like a tool to say like, Hey, you're not experiencing pregnancy, but what your spouse might be feeling is this, this, and this. And mm -hmm. I would love that to exist in, in a lot of other areas. Um, so I do like the idea of partners coming together and having a support group to talk through this stuff because I think it'd give them better perspective. Uh, but mm -hmm. I do not have resources for that. Um, you know, unfortunately, we are missing out on a lot of those types of groups that could be very beneficial. Uh, it, it's hard to find things like that here, especially, you know, not being in a big city. Mm -hmm. Definitely. So... Morgan, I know you had discussed um, some resources that you had for survivors. Would you like to talk about those now? Yeah. So um, first I want to share. So I, I wanted to give a shout out to three of my students in my gender and sexuality class who helped me find some stuff. Uh, we actually just talked about sexual assault last night. That was our lecture. Um, but I told them about a week or two ago that I was doing this podcast. And I was like, hey, if, any, if you guys are reading books for your, um, they're doing a book report and they can choose what topic it can be on. It can just be in anything that we've covered in this class. Uh, so I'm like, if you've seen something in your book reports, or if you want to do additional research for this particular topic, uh, they have to do treatment plans soon. So this would help their treatment plans if they chose to work with somebody who had, um, you know, kind of a fake client that had dealt with something like this. So I um, got some stuff from them and uh, I, I told them, I was like, I'm going to give you a shout out. So that's Macon Mills, Rakia Malachi and Jess Renard. And they um, gave me some really great stuff. So first, I wanted to share an article that my student Macon found. And I think it's like a somebody wrote, a, wrote it on 
it, I think, Shilpa, this might be interesting to you. I believe this person was graduating with some sort of social work degree and did it for like a last thesis assignment, but found some really interesting stuff. And I'll give you that information, Faith, um, afterwards, yeah. what the article is. But it talks about some good interventions. And one intervention that I hadn't heard of is called the sexual consent model. Um, and it's to help the partners relearn how to safely be sexual together and uh, with boundaries. So it's a very specific model, but I bet that it could be really easy to find. And uh, that could be something to bring up to counselors. Um, and then they also, yeah, that's the article that found that positive trauma informed dyadic relationships are the most nurturing to survivors. So earlier when I was mentioning that, yes, it can be done alone, can be done if, if there's not a partner involved, but having that partner involved who is trauma informed and who has all this education that we've discussed could be extremely beneficial. Um, and then isolation is something that we need to be mindful of to make sure that they avoid because isolation in these cases, um, is going to cause those sexual myths and all of those negative thoughts to fester and turn into a lot bigger of things to, to kind of process through. And then, um, my student Jess found that there's a cool intervention that's called a body map. So this is drawing an outline of a body and you work with your partner and you kind of show them as the survivor, what areas, um, feel off limits and on limits. I don't know if you guys have seen this. There's one going around the internet where it's a, um, just a drawing of a cat and it shows like green areas, which is like, yes touch these areas. These are good. And then yellow's like, mm, depends on how the touch is. Mm -hmm. And then there's red that's like, avoid this. <laughs> and so there's really funny examples of that where some cats are like all red, like absolutely <laughs> not, do not touch. But I love that idea. I think that you could work with your partner and, and sit down and kind of just show them on a map of a body of what areas you feel comfortable with, particularly when you're trying to reintroduce these touches. And that might shift with time and it likely will once you get more comfortable and you feel safe and you feel like you're, you know, in a good place to do so. Um, but I, I just thought that was really fun. And then, yeah, we talked about triggers, any noticing any triggers, smells, visuals, things like that. Find ways to combat those. So if there is a particular smell, making sure that, um, you know, we talked about earlier having the partner be kind of in charge of making sure that smell doesn't exist in the home or where um, you want to be intimate and, and finding something that smells completely different and opposite just to offer up, you know, a way to avoid that trigger. Um, and then there's a really great book that one student found. It's for counselors. It's called Counseling Skills for Working with Trauma. Uh, and there's a whole chapter on how to heal from any type of sexual violence or child abuse or intimate partner violence. Uh, and it's called the chapter is Managing Sexuality. And there's a lot of great stuff in here. I think that we talked about going at their own pace, the survivor having to, to be kind of the guide on going in the in the way that they feel is, is comfortable. Uh, and then being able to identify their safety needs. So I need to know that um, the door is locked or I need to know that I can get out of the room 
if I need to. So safety needs, I think, need to be a part of the conversation that we mentioned earlier with noticing those triggers is what, what safety stuff can we pull in there too. So I loved that. Now, um, something else that's really important that I mentioned is the learning about your own body after this has happened. One, we all need to do that anyway, because we talked about bad sex ed. But I do think that after a trauma like this, to rewire your brain into to ever getting to a point where you can have a healthy sex life, I do think that you need to relearn some of the basics. And for women, I love this book. It's called The Vagina Bible. And it's by uh, Jen Gunter. She's actually a medical doctor. And she goes through some, uh, she goes through everything. Anything that's related to a vagina, she's talked about. But it also, I mean, it covers things like shaving and soaps and stuff like, like pH balance. Some really intense science stuff that I don't fully understand. But the most important part is kind of those first couple chapters where it covers um, the sexual organs and what they can be used for. And so just having something like this is great. You feel very empowered. And I think empowerment is going to be extremely helpful working with survivors because you want them to feel like they have power over their own body and, um, and their own life and their own experiences. And so education helps with that. One that is a little bit less sciencey, but is way fun to read is Come As You Are. And it does focus a lot on the psychological components of sexuality. And uh, this is by Emily Nagowski. It's, it's honestly one of my favorite books ever. But the most important thing that comes from this book, I think, is this concept of um, breaks and accelerators that occur within all of us when it comes to uh, kind of sexual interest and being able to be sexually aroused. And what happens is when there's trauma involved, there's a lot more breaks that exist. So those triggers, those things that tell your brain, I'm no longer aroused or I'm no longer interested in having this intimate moment. There's a lot of breaks that are um, involved that are psychological in nature that need to be addressed. Um, while accelerators are things that, you know, get you in the mood and make you feel comfortable and safe. And so having that concept and, and understanding how that applies to you and your partner, I think would be fantastic to, to talk through. And so this book does such a good job of, of walking you through that and addressing those specific concerns. And I think that could be very helpful. So those are, those are my favorite resources, at least. Anyone listening, I'm going to be linking all of those below. Um, Morgan will send those over to me. And so they'll be in the description box below if you're interested in learning more and um, getting those names. But all right. Does anyone else have anything to say? Any comments before we kind of ask our last question? I just want to say, um, Morgan, I think what you do is, is excellent and awesome. And we're so lucky to have you in the community to do that. Um, especially just, you know, like with me being a mother and having, young children and knowing kind of because they're teenagers now and being exposed to a lot of different things yeah. um, and not really being um, told the truth because, you know, the media has so much more power over them than what mm -hmm. I say to them that I do think it's important that if they do learn things that are not necessarily the right way, that there is, you know, people out there in their future that can help them. Um, go through some of those battles that they may go through in their futures. Um, so I just want to say how much I appreciate you and appreciate what you do. 
Thank you. Yeah, I, I'm very passionate about it. I, I want to do all that I can. Because um, like we said, not every counselor is going to be okay with this stuff. We are getting better as a, as a whole, as a um, field. I think we're getting more and more open to these discussions, which is fantastic for survivors, knowing that people are out there. And um, if this is something that somebody wants to seek in a counselor, uh, there's lots of ways on Psychology Today to look up for those that are comfortable with sexual issues. Um, there, there's kind of some phrasing that you can play with to see if anybody pops up. Uh, most will still see these types of concerns, but they won't necessarily advertise it. So it's still worth asking and sending an email and saying, hey, here's what I'm dealing with. Is this something you're comfortable with? Um, but like I said, we're getting better at that. So hopefully there's more and more clinicians that offer up this stuff so that survivors can get what they need to have the healthy, happy sex lives that they can. Right. And that they deserve. Exactly. Absolutely. Yeah. I also want to add um, from like, a person who's, um, you know, 24 years old, like, I've learned a lot, and it's very empowering, and, like, I know now, like, I can share a lot with, you know, people my age, and, like, I have a lot to take for my future, and, like, my kids' future, and so just, like, you know, a simple podcast can be so empowering to so many people. And so like kudos to Faith and like kudos to you too for coming on. Thank you so much because um, I really learned a lot from this. And so uh, it just like, even if, you know, people don't go out and read all these books and learn all these things just by listening to you know, like an hour long or 40 minutes long podcast, like we can learn so much from this. Yeah. You're right. And I'm so glad you said that because you made me think about something. I forgot to plug, there's a Netflix show called Explained, uh, where they're like little 20, 25 minute episodes and they have a sex explained one as well. So in the explained one, they've got a couple things related to sexuality, but the sex explained has obviously quite a few. And there's some really fascinating stuff. And and even Gwyneth Paltrow has an episode of one of her strange shows that talks about uh, the female orgasm. These things are things that like, it's sad that we don't know it and we're not taught it. And I learned it in these books first and then have tried to, to spread it. But thankfully, there's more entertaining ways to get that information than hearing me say it. Um, but y'all check out those, those, uh, little episodes too, because that gives you so much information. And the whole point is to empower women to get to know their own body because the only person responsible for our sexuality is ourselves. And so we, of course, that's not true in assault situations, uh, when they, you know, um, try to take something from us that is not theirs to take, but to take it back and have it on our own. Yes, we need to learn. We need to uh, feel empowered and feel like our bodies are as amazing as they are. And so all these things that I've brought up, I think really do help do that. So, <sighs> yes. okay. So we just have one last question for you. Okay. Um, sure. We asked this um, of everyone who comes on the podcast, just as kind of like a way to end it. What is your message to survivors? Talk about it. Don't, don't bottle it up. The longer it's bottled up, the the harder it is to come out. Um, I think that the Me Too movement and a lot of these things that have come out recently have encouraged people to say, why, why am I ashamed of something that I had no control over? 
Um, and so thankfully that's getting better, but I, I do, I want you to talk about it. I want you to find somebody who's safe to discuss these things with, find a support system, uh, eventually find some, a professional that can help you walk through all this stuff. Somebody who's non-biased and gives you a safe space, um, non-judgmental. So uh, that's, that's the only thing I can say. And, and you guys do amazing work where you're at and offer that for them. It is somewhere to come somewhere, you know, you guys are advocates. You guys do so much for these survivors. Um, and, and that is just such a great thing to be able to, to go to. So I just want them to, um, yeah, figure out what they need for support and, and do what they can to overcome it and know that it is possible. It's a hard thing to do, but everything in life is hard. And if they choose to have this, then I do think that they can, they can get there. And so I just want to show my support by saying that. Perfect. Thank you so much for joining us, Morgan. Um, I dare to say this might be my favorite podcast we've done so far. Um, oh, I love that. <laughs> Thank you for having me. This has been fantastic. I, I love talking about this stuff. Good, good. Well, we might really be hitting you up for more, uh, maybe <laughs> in the next. So <laughs> do that. Thank you for joining us. Thank you, Shilpa and Amanda, for um, helping out today. And thank you to all our listeners out there. Again, I will have all of those links in the description box below. And we will see you guys on our next podcast. Bye.